This is Power 102 Digital, the Power Breakfast Show podcast series. Two weeks from today will be Juve. Thank you so much, Amy, for our major news. Of course, we have a news brace coming up at 8 o'clock. Right here on Power 102 Digital. Paul Richards, Richard Ragobarising. Ruben is in the mix. Wendell Stephen is MIA. Not, he's not there. Missing in action. He's here somewhere. My name is Steve Conway. We'll keep you company until 9 o'clock. Quickly, let's take a look what's happening traffic-wise. It's going to ease up maybe next week. Carnival might ease up next week. Uh, okay, you got traffic this morning from Piaco heading towards Yui. And just after QREP, you're going to get traffic straight into Port of Spain. You got traffic from Kelly Village, Ibis Gardens towards the CRH. You've got traffic. From Aruka, various spots straight up towards Mobile Junction and Eastern Main Road. Going up Lady Young Road, coming down Lady Young Road is also heavy. Very heavy out of Mocha and Maraval. And out of Dago, also very heavy. Alright, oh, what's that I'm seeing there? It is, oh, it's a minor accident northbound just by the Carney River, just after the Carney River, uh, heading northbound, alright? What are you going to get traffic on the solid? Oh, another one? No. Okay. Riverland Road is heavy. San Fernando lighter than usual. All right. But traffic is starting from Charlieville heading northbound. That's quick traffic update for you. All right. Of course, uh, let's get the results of our morning poll before I get Mr. Kevin Ramnarine online. Our poll this morning, do you think that the possibility of Jack Warner... And the UNC reuniting will be a successful political force against the PNM. That's our poll. I got one more for you, Rich Rich. I just saw it pop up here. Sharpoon. Um, oh, no. Sharpoon is saying Nikita was found since yesterday. She was found safe. All right. Thank you, Sharpoon. Okay, I got no more results for you, Rich. So we have 19 people voting on the poll this morning. And of the 19 people, 16 of you said no. You do not think that it will be a political force against the PNM, a successful political force against the PNM. And three of you said yes, you think it has the possibility of being just that. So 16 and 319 in the allotted time. Of course, you can continue to vote on this poll throughout the day and through our programming, and we'll give you the final results tomorrow morning, which will be Tuesday. Yeah. That's not Carnival. will come, and it will go, just like Christmas. Okay, let me get Mr. Kevin Ramnarine online here. And our poll, just in case you're now joining us, our poll was, well, continues to be, 
do you think that Jack Warner and the UNC reuniting will be a successful political force against the PNM? Of course, one of the dailies this morning is a picture of Jack Warner and and Kamala Pesad Bessessa being very chummy. And and, and Paul said how, um, um, what did Paul say? Um, Oh, politically entwined. (laughs) <laughs> that they were that it was that he said was the beginning or something like that. Jack Warner said when asked about it, he said this is simply this is the beginning. The beginning. The beginning. Very ominous. I'm just saying many people said I wasn't there. So I don't know what that means. This is the beginning of a re, re, re uh, we just escapes yes, <laughs> reuniting. Uh, a reunion, sorry. You know, I yeah. don't know. Well, maybe we could ask our guest, Mr. Kevin Ramnarain, that pool. Good morning Recording to you. Recording in progress. Good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Morning. Of course, we have Paul Richards and we have Richard Ragu Basse. Okay. Morning, Kevin. Morning. Happy New Year, man. Well, but the year is no longer new, but Happy New Year to you. All the same. <laughs> well, it's, it's the first time I'm talking to you for the year, but relatively new. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It's well, only a month and six days, it'll, so. it'll be it'll be over. <laughs> True. <laughs> How are you? Good, 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 good to be back on the program. First time for twenty twenty three. Yeah. So good morning, right. everybody, uh, and good morning. We're we talking. We talk. Steve asked a question just now. There's a picture of uh, Mrs. Pasabi Sessa and Jack Warner talking and in political embrace at a fet over the weekend. Uh, and our question this morning was: Do you think the, them reuniting will be a successful political force against the PNM. That's our question. What do you think? Well, I think they're both very... I've worked with two of them. Um, you know, it was a great experience working with both of them. And it's good to see Mr. Warner up and about. Mrs. Prasad Bissester, we see all the time because she's the opposition leader. It's good to see Jack um, up and about. And, you know, if they, if they feel that um, coming together is going to be making, you know, the UNC stronger, um, so, so be it. Because, you know, a strong opposition is, as you know, Paul, from sitting in the parliament, a strong opposition and a strong independent bench are very important to hold, to hold any it's government and so on. You know, so it's, um, yeah. it's, good, it's good for the country. And it's, it's, as I said, it's good to see Mr. Warner looks very good. You know, I think yeah. he's in his late 70s, but, you know, he's clearly... He looks well. He looks well. Yep. So good luck. Uh, would, good luck would you, to them. Would you, if Mrs. Pasabi Sessa has opened the door to work for the UNC to work with other smaller parties, I guess the ILP may be one of them. Uh, would you return to duty if called? Um, yeah, if called. I mean, I think I have. I think I have a lot more experience now. Um, if you compare the Kevin Ramnerine of 2023 to the Kevin Ramnerine of 2015, it's, I have a lot more experience and wider knowledge and so on. So I think um, I think I would go back if the opportunity, if the if the permutation arises, because the country needs a, a lot of work, as you could see, especially the economy. So if if well, the, well you have a great foundation. You are, of course, from Hillview, so. <laughs> Well, you know the thing about the thing about Hillview College, and I, if you all want to allow me, because I think we have two Hillview old boys in the studio there. Mm-hmm. Hillview, Hillview sits in the middle of the. And one outcast. 
and one outcast. Have you sits in the middle of the East West Corridor? Um, it is one of the most diverse um, prestige schools in the country. I read I read that I read that in the in the Express once in terms of its composition. So I think that you know people people who go to that school are sort of well prepared to navigate Trinidad and Tobago. That's You're right. I, got a, I had a great experience yeah. in terms of diversity. You hear that, Richard? Yeah. Very, yeah. Uh, we're talking about this morning, substantially, the issue of the recent announcement by the government about the waiver of the U.S. government to uh, the Dragon Field issue. And uh, we spoke to Mariano Brown last week, who said, who had some interesting perspectives, including the fact that uh, he didn't think it was... Uh, and I'm paraphrasing in my room would say I could be, I hope I'm not misquoting him, that the issue of the two-year license was really a, a, a challenge because in the timeline of things, it is going to take more than two years for uh, the negotiations to be completed, for investment to come in, for infrastructure to be built, to even start to get, I think the, 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 the phrase is gas out of the ground, and first gas. Um, he said that, that in gas. sorry first gas first, first gas. gas that's the phrase thank yeah. you and that 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 while the government had applied for 10 years and gotten two it was not a great uh indicator because investors are not going to see it as 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 safe enough or secure enough to invest one and two there are so many other issues, including the inability to, to pay cash, etc. I saw an article you wrote. So give us a perspective from you, from the initial announcement, well, see, and what you thought, and what moving forward. So so we have a very big problem in Trinidad and Tobago. And that problem is natural gas supply, or natural gas production. <clears throat> so we've lost about 37% of our natural gas production in the last 12, 12 to 13 years, since 2010. It's come down by about um, by by 37 percent. That's significant. So whereas in 2010 we were producing 4.3 billion cubic feet of gas per day, by 2022 or the end of 2022 we had come down to 2.7. So that's a big decline, and the the consequence of that decline is manifested in plant closure and loss of loss of of GDP loss of revenue, it affects it affects everything. So one of the ways that different governments have sought to address that problem is to source natural gas from Venezuela because we're so close to them. They have a lot of gas, very close to to our infrastructure and so on. It makes sense economically to marry their reserves with our with our infrastructure. And as I think it was Andrew Jupiter had pointed out he has been involved in those discussions now for well over 30 years, uh, dating back to the NER period when the border between Trinidad and Tobago and Venezuela was settled um, during the ANR Robinson administration. So if you look, look at a map of Trinidad and Tobago, there is a border coming down, straight down the middle of the Gulf of Barrier. And that border also divides some gas fields to our north. So one of those on the Venezuelan side is a field called Dragon. And on the Trinidad side, we have some fields operated by Shell. 
And those fields are named after flowers, you know, shakonia, hibiscus, poinsettia, and so on. And there is a platform which is 17 kilometers away from Dependence Wilderness and Reserves called the hibiscus platform. So it's pretty short distance, relatively speaking. So, of course, I think it was now two weeks ago, the Prime Minister came and gave us the, the news that the U.S. had granted uh, a waiver or a license from through their, what they call their OFAC office, and it was for two years and so on. And initially, there was a lot of euphoria, uh, a lot of positivity and things around that. And I think that over the last two weeks, new information started to seep out. Um, first of all, of course, we had the comments. The first thing that struck me is that there was silence from Venezuela. And it was only a few days ago that uh, Reuters reported that the president of Venezuela was not happy at all with this arrangement, with what the U.S. had proposed. And he went so far to describe it as colonialism. And I think that, I think that of course, he's referring to the fact that payments have to be, cannot be received in cash. Um, so he made a statement. Um, I saw the I saw the statement on on Venezuelan um, TV, Teleshow, I think it's called. Um, so, so Venezuela is not happy with what the U.S. has put onto the table. Um, a lot of people have been asking me, how does the U.S. get to call the shots on Venezuelan natural gas? Um, so I just want to explain that. What the U.S. The U.S. doesn't have any sort of sovereign right over Venezuela or Trinidad and Tobago. But what they do have is the power to administer sanctions if people do business with Venezuela. So it is, it is, um, it is that big stick that they wield um, over, over countries that do business or want to do business with Venezuela. So the, the two-year period, of course, is insufficient. The Prime Minister did say that it is possible that they could apply for an extension or a renewal, and that's reasonable. Um, but in the world that we work in, the world that we live in, of course, companies like certainty. I mean, even the smallest of companies like certainty. Um, this project is not going to happen in two years. I know that there are a lot of people who think that it could happen before the election for political points to be scored and so on. It's not going to happen in two years. <clears throat> um, one person told me the, what is called the front-end engineering and design might take two years just the, the engineering and design work. Um, but there, it is going to take more than two years. It is, you know, I don't want to... I had said to the news, day, three to four years. I now think that that's an optimistic assessment of the situation. So it's going to take a bit longer than that. And then, of course, there are a lot of moving parts and variables. There are a lot of risk. There is the election in Venezuela next year the general election in Venezuela next year. And Venezuela is always a very volatile place. There's also an election in the United States uh, in 2024 for the presidency. And, you know, the Republicans have a different view of Venezuela and Cuba as opposed to the Democratic Party. So what if government changes in the U.S.? What if government changes in Venezuela? So there's that political risk. And then there's the engineering risk. Um, for example... You know, based on reports from consultancies like Wood Mackenzie and so on, we are told that there were four wells drilled in the Dragon Field. We don't know what the status of those wells are. 
Um, you know, we so would we have to drill new wells in the dragon field? If so, you're looking at about 150 million US dollars per well. And then you're looking at the pipeline to be run to Trinidad. So you're looking at a project in the vicinity. I don't want to come up with a cost, you know, I might be criticized and so on. But you're looking at possibly a project costing somewhere between 700 to 800 million US dollars. Who is going to foot that bill? And the other thing too is that as Mariano pointed out in his column, and perhaps when he was on this program, a number of major international companies, multinational oil and gas companies, have have issues with PDVSA in different courts around the world. So there's also the, the political and the economic risk of companies doing business in Venezuela. So this is a very complex, a very complex deal, um, and therefore I don't see it happening in two years. I mean, I think that's a more than reasonable assessment of, of that situation. But do, do you think it's a project that is going to happen at all? Well, this is the thing. We've been pursuing Venezuela for the last, as Mr. Jupiter pointed out, Professor Jupiter pointed out, since the NAR era. And it, it has not happened. And <clears throat> I just want to let the, the listening audience know, whereas Trinidad and Tobago has a natural gas-based economy, and, you know, our emphasis tends to be more natural gas than oil. Venezuela is the reverse. Venezuela has the world's largest reserves of oil. Uh, natural gas just happens to be, you know, a small part of their, their oil and gas empire in Venezuela. So the, the priority for Venezuela has always been oil, in my assessment. Um, so whereas this project might be a very high priority for us, it may not be such a high priority for for our friends in Venezuela. And that's just my personal point of view because they have so much oil to develop. So would it happen? I think that the economics makes sense. I think that the you know, but I think that the complexities of the politics uh, as it relates to Venezuela and the US and Trinidad is is really something which would mean that it takes more time. I, I mean, I listen well, you have a sort the... of you, you have a triangular kind of geopolitical situation when you look at the three countries and what their interests are and where they merge and where they don't merge. So part of it, to me, has to be relationships. And what kind of relationship does Dr. Rowley have with Maduro in terms of the personal relationship, in terms of making it happen? Because I think personal relationships is what businesses thrive on. That's why they well, have all of these networking. The is, and, uh, from, my from my experience as minister, Venezuela has always had, and Trinidad and Venezuela have always had good relations. Venezuela has always expressed, whenever I went to Venezuela, they always reminded me, this is the government of Venezuela, always reminded me that, you know, Mr. Manning helped them in a very difficult time, uh, which was when there was a strike in Venezuela in 2003 and Trinidad had sent cargoes of fuel across. So there's always that goodwill. But there are so many other forces at play. Um, and that you have to think to about the whole geopolitical chess game taking place in the region, which is something which I don't think people think about. But Russia has a presence in Venezuela. Um, I was going to ask Russia that, Kevin, about, about how much of a factor is that? That while... And, and why do you think at this time the U.S., found 
uh, the ability to soften at some level the 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 relationship issues with Venezuela and allow this concession, even while they know there is a strong relationship continuing between Venezuela and Russia and Cuba in this geopolitical space. And then, of course, let's not forget China has China is a is a significant creditor of Venezuela, right? Um, so there's China involved in Venezuela, there is Russia involved in Venezuela, there is Iran, they have a relationship with Iran. I read recently where the Iranians are going to help them restart the refining sector. So there are a lot of other forces at play that could be influencing what is happening in Venezuela that we can't quantify or we can't put a finger on. I think the Americans, because of the Russia-Ukraine war, and because of the situation with natural gas in Russia's supply of natural gas to Europe, I think the Americans were willing to crack open the door a bit to, to create another avenue for natural gas to, to get to the international market, to get to Europe and so on. Uh, I saw Jamaica mentioned in the Prime Minister's statement. Um, I saw the Dominican Republic, the Minister, Minister Daryl Vaz, who is the Minister of Energy of Jamaica, says he knows nothing about this. Um, I think I would have sent the article to Steve, the article from, from, the, from the media in Jamaica. So was Jamaica consulted in, in all this? Um, you know, So it is very early days, and I think you know, we have to continue to, we always, we have to continue to work on this, um, you know, on getting it to happen. And I just want to say for the record, it's something that we would all like to see happen because we know the importance of natural gas in our economy. As I just pointed out, um, you know, we've had a big decline in natural gas production over the last, over the last 13 years. So we need natural gas. So it's not but based on what you said not... earlier on, Kevin, in terms of Venezuela focusing more on oil because they're the, they have the largest oil reserve, is it the Western Hemisphere? The largest, uh, they have the largest certified oil, oil reserves in the world. In the, in the world. And, and the, the fact world, that they focus yeah. on oil wouldn't it also be strategically beneficial for them to, to work with Trinidad and Tobago while they focus on the oil to, to, to develop the dragon field to get gas and benefit from that in a, in a strong, in, in a substantial way? I think I think ultimately what they want is US dollars or some sort of currency. I mean, they may not want US dollars, they may want some other currency, but I don't I mean, from what the president said, President Maduro said, um, and he waited, he didn't immediately react. There was silence from Venezuela, the ambassador to Port of Spain wasn't saying anything and then all of a sudden we have a statement from the president of Venezuela that he's opposed to this this is colonialism and he you know he, he's not in favor of what the united states has proposed so clearly they need cash to run their country um, what are the and, options and, and, in, in lieu of cash in terms of what com- countries can ex- can barter well you could i mean you could trade you could trade you could trade goods you could send as i think the reuters article said humanitarian aid but i don't think the venezuelans want that i think what they want is cash um, you could trade methanol cargoes, you could trade ammonia cargoes, you could find ways around cash, right? I mean, we could find ways around cash, right, between between human beings. But generally, I would expect that, given the situation in Venezuela, they need cash to run the country, to pay debt, to, to buy goods and services, and 
to pay salaries and so on. I mean, there's a there was a, there was a there was a huge protest in Venezuela a few weeks ago by by teachers demanding more money. So Mr. Maduro has to pay them with with cash. He can't pay them with humanitarian aid. So it is reasonable that Venezuela will want cash for the natural gas. How much of a factor is Guyana's explosion in all of this? You see, that's, there's a whole, as I said, there's a whole subtle geopolitical chess game taking place in the region. You have to think about, think about Guyana's from, first of all, Venezuela has made a claim, as you know, um, and that claim has been around since the 1960s. And there is a history to that claim that, that relates to the Cold War um, that was at its peak in the, 19, in the early 1960s. The claim was made on, on Guyana. Venezuela's claim on Guyana was made around the time Guyana was about to get its independence from, from Great Britain. And <clears throat> that claim has been around since, I think, 1965. And it went away. You didn't hear much about it for a long period of time. And then, of course, in 2015, when, when Guyana discovered oil through Exxon, the claim came back up. Um, and you have to remember, too, who is the major company in Guyana discovering all this oil? It's uh, ExxonMobil, which is as American as apple pie, right? So, so there's American interest in the region. There is Russian interest in the region. There is Chinese interest in the region. And we, as a small country of 1.4 million people, I think we are a small country. Um, we have to be friends with everybody in the world. We, we're too small to be anybody's enemy. And we have to, therefore, walk this very tight rope, this very narrow road of diplomacy. So, you know, I had said that the Prime Minister was doing the right thing, and I stand by that, by being persistent with his diplomatic efforts. And because he sees, I think he recognizes the importance of getting this gas into Trinidad and Tobago's ammonia, methanol, LNG plants, and so on. Dragon is just one of many fields. There are other fields close to Dragon. If you see the petroleum economist map of Trinidad and Tobago, so it is possible that in the long term we could get gas beyond Dragon. So it is something worth pursuing. Um, we pursued it when we were in government. Um, Mrs. Basad Bissessa pursued it whenever she met Maduro, um, President Maduro. She would always, you know, she would always corner him, you know, literally corner him and say, you know, we, we need to progress this thing, what's happening. Uh, so Mr. Prime Minister Manning pursued it. But as you all said, it hasn't happened because it's such a complex, a complex um, arrangement and the politics of Venezuela in the last, I would say, the last 10 years, because President Chavez died actually 10 years ago in 2013. Because I remember the day he died. Um, I was in Houston the day he died, and I actually had a meeting that day with somebody who is very close to him. And I remember going to the guy's office, and he was preparing to leave to go Venezuela immediately. So it's 2013, and since the death of Chavez, Venezuela has become a much more complex geopolitical hot potato. Um, so it is; it has become more difficult to navigate um, doing business in Venezuela. So it is going to be what, it's not going to happen in two years, gentlemen. Um, but Kevin, you, ju you just you just 
you just mentioned that there, there is a possibility eventually of other gas beyond Dragon. Um, and I know the state would have um, auctioned certain rounds for oil, and I assume gas too. Um, so what are our prospects for gas outside of Dragon? And, so this in, is a good what, question because um, in the absence of Dragon, let's assume that Dragon is, you know, a medium-term or a long-term solution to our problem. We have an immediate problem before us right now. Um, our gas supply is not sufficient to meet the, the demands of our industrial base in Trinidad and Tobago. Of course, we, we don't compromise electricity in Trinidad. Electricity always gets its, TNTEC always gets the natural gas that it needs because the consequence of TNTEC not getting the natural gas it needs, it means that, of course, we'll have blackouts in Trinidad. So our one of the best bets for Trinidad and Tobago to solve its own problem on its own terms using its own reserves is our deep water gas. And depending on the source that you read, um, Woodside, which used to be BHP, Woodside has found anywhere between 3.5 trillion cubic feet of gas to 5 trillion cubic feet of gas to the northeast of Tobago. And that's about the size of Dragon. The problem is that that gas is further away from Trinidad and Tobago than Dragon is to Trinidad and Tobago. This is just the neighborhood we live in. So, so the irony here is that the Venezuelan gas is actually closer to Trinidad and Tobago than our own deporter gas, which is, you know, um, probably about 100 miles northeast of Tobago or 150 miles northeast of Tobago. So the infrastructure challenges, the cost of bringing our own deporter gas to the shoreline in Mayaro or Guayaguari is going to be challenging economically and challenging infrastructurally, but it's something that we have to pursue, in my respectful view. Um, being the minister who opened up the deep water and awarded those licenses in 2013 and 2014 to what was then BHP, we expected that, I could tell you, at the ministry in that period, we expected that BHP would have taken those licenses, gone out there and found oil. Um, but they went out there and they found gas. And developing gas in deep water is a lot more. It's a lot more. It's a, it's it's not as economically attractive as developing oil. So, because Guyana is of course developing oil in its deep water, and it's just simply a matter of the tankers going out into the deep water and filling up from the floating production storage of loading vessel. But gas is a bit different. So, the government has to pursue the development of of that deep water gas. There were stories in the Express a couple of days ago with interviews of the president of Woodside and interviews of the president of, of BP. And they were both talking about the fact that it has the potential to help the country greatly, but there are certain things that have to be done, like the terms. I think somebody mentioned the, the commercial terms and so on. But I would pursue that because there, that is not that is not fettered by any sort of cross-border or across-the-border issues. It's our gas in, in our waters, um, and we should pursue that. That, But that's, that, too, gentlemen, is going to take time. That can happen in two years. 
Yeah. So even, but what are even the other? What are there other prospects in our deep waters in terms of oil and gas? And and well, are those prospects is, positive or just water, unknown? I think that I think that the the it, we have just scratched the surface of the exploration of our deep water, and in scratching that surface, BHP then Woodside discovered a significant amount of gas off Tobago. Um, and I think that what we have to do is to get more exploration happening in the deep water. But there was a deep water bit wrong in 2022. It didn't give the ministry the outcome that the ministry expected. It was a bit disappointing. So we have to we have to get more and more exploration taking place in that deep water. Um, but at, at, I don't at, really direct at, question. At this point in time, I just you know, BHP has or Woodside has discovered what I a pretty significant amount of gas off Tobago. It's just it's far it's far away from any infrastructure. I have a direct question. I mean, based on this development with, with, with Dragon and Venezuela and uh, the, the issues related to the Atlantic, how do you think George Young is doing as an energy minister? You sat in the seat before. Well, Mr. Minister Young seems to have some sort of, some sort of problem with me. Um, I don't speak about him, but he speaks quite a lot about me. So uh, last week, I think it was, the news they asked me, to give my opinion on when this dragon gas would come to Trinidad. I said three to four years. Uh, I now revise that saying that that's optimistic. But then he came and he, he replied to that. Newsday told him that Ram Narayan said three to four years. And of course, the, the mention of the name Ram Narayan seems to, seems to put him into a different zone. And he said Ram Narayan is clueless. So that's fine. I don't treat insults to people, gentlemen. That's for the rum shop and that's for the that's for the schoolyard and so on. I think that Trinidad Tobago deserves a higher level of discourse, and that is where I I choose to be at. If Minister Young chooses to be a couple notches below, that's that's for him. But I think that Trinidad deserves a higher level of discourse. What, um, what are your thoughts on Atlantic and and and? How we evolve Atlantic, given trade one is basically shut down, and their challenges. I don't think trade one. I mean, and, I see. I see people saying that trade one could restart. Trade one has not been operational since November two thousand and two thousand and twenty. We are now in twenty twenty three. Like the refinery, um, trade one is not going to be restarted. Um, I don't think the refinery is going to be restarted. Too. I think we've. The refinery is now down, what, five going on six years? And train one is now down two going on three years. I don't think these things are going to be started. Trains two, three, and four are running at 70% capacity. So I would think that before a conversation happens about restarting train one, which is the, which is the, the oldest train, we would want to get trains two, three, and four back up to full capacity. So I don't see these things happening. Um, I think train one is. I think train one is lost, um, and I think I think the refinery is also lost. Sad to say. What, is, what does that mean, lost? That Even it's five years it's in abeyance now. Waiting to see the people who have offered to to buy it, they have been rejected. Uh, from all the experts, it's going to take significant amounts of investment to restart a a, a refinery. Is basically okay. Is, is the wood mothballed? Is it that is, is going to be more than likely split up to be is, sold in parts? I think I think the refinery could be restarted 
um, perhaps not at the level that it operated at in 2018 when it was shut down. Um, you could probably restart the refinery in a smaller, a smaller modality in terms of production and produce some product for Trinidad and Tobago's own consumption and maybe some for the region. But I think that the government, and this is where it gets, I think any investor of substance, any investor of substance, whether it's a Shell or a Hess or a BP or a Marathon, somebody like that, and those are the names I would like to attract to partner with us to, to restart the refinery. Um, I, you know, there are a lot of small own entities you're hearing about interested in the refinery. I think that a, a, a partner of substance would want to would want to cooperate or to partner with a government entity um, like an NGC or a Heritage or to restart the refinery. So it is possible it could be restarted. I mean, you could restart anything. You could restart. If you have a car under your house for the last 25 years, you could restart that. But, but it but comes it down to the cost of restarting money. and the viability of it and sustainability. Well, this is the thing. And I had calculated back in 2018, I think it was, um, that it would have cost about a billion US dollars to restart the refinery. It's probably going to be a lot more than a billion US dollars now, maybe 1.5 billion. Where's that money coming from? And who's going to take that risk? Um and we have to think, too, about what's happening in the world with the demand for gasoline in the world. Because most people expect the demand for gasoline to begin to decline um, around the middle part of the next decade. Because, of course, the electric cars, the more, every time I go to the U.S., I see more electric cars on the road. I see more Teslas on the road. I see more charging stations. So demand for gasoline. Well, they all have they all, they all have signed on to to is it the, the climate change uh, document that that most to renewable energy by a particular time frame. So those larger yes. countries are so, moving so toward to that, that transition. We have to think about the fact that you know the world's demand for gasoline will become less and less in ten years, in fifteen years. So you know where where does that leave us? Right. Um, so. Those are some of the questions you have to ask. Maybe it is you want to restart the refinery to do, you know, biofuels, you know, um, because there's a demand for biofuels in the world. So we have to think differently now about our energy sector. I, I'm happy to see some some people are thinking about hydrogen um, because the world is heading in that direction, and I think that there's great potential for hydrogen. Um, renewable energy, we haven't been able to get the solar farms the BP light source project off the ground. I'm hopeful that that could happen in 2023. But there's a question mark around solar farms, which is where are the solar farms going to be placed? Orange Grove and Bretton Castle. And is that agricultural land? So are we sterilizing agricultural land to generate electricity? Right? Um, or is it that we should be looking at the East Coast and wind, wind energy on the East Coast? Because, as you know, the East Coast is very rich in wind. So, you know, we've taken in a different direction. But there are other ways to do agriculture rather than just utilizing land. Yeah, the sure. So there's hydroponics and so on. But there's a, yeah, the there's technological a, global, ways a, now. a global discussion about solar energy and its, um, its sterilization of agricultural land, um, which is why I think that places like Abu Dhabi and so on are, you know, very comfortable with solar energy because 
it's it's being built on desert land. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, but in 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 Trinidad we have a shortage of agricultural land, and agricultural land in Trinidad is is rapidly vanishing, as you know, um, from anybody who who has seen what has happened with Aranguas and um, you know other parts of the country and so on. Where we used to is it that you're is it that you're suggesting that we should stay away from solar and more concentrate? No, no, on no, it? no. I'm just saying that we need to be wary that you know where we place solar farms and so on. We we are not we're not um, sterilizing agricultural land. No, they they have. I mean, I, I was told because I had this discussion a few days ago with somebody that you know it is possible to you know you could put solar panels on the on the dams in Trinidad. Um, you know, that way it doesn't affect land and so on. So there's many solutions, um, you know, taking place all over the world. And, and the but hybrid system and houses and commercial buildings and et cetera. Well, there are many options with solar energy. Kevin, I just want to change gears just a bit before we end and to get your thoughts on what you saw of the Paria Commission of Inquiry and coming out of that, your your basic thoughts, your general thoughts, and how do you think that should inform the industry moving forward? Well, I could tell you, I could tell you that, um, you know, one of the things that I hope comes out of this whole Paria Commission of Inquiry is that we, we take another look at the OSH Act. And I think that what has happened over the last couple of decades, the OSH Act was passed, passed in 2004. And so we now into 19 years of the OSH Act. I think a lot of complacency has seeped into Trinidad and Tobago, not just the energy sector, but throughout the country in terms of HSC, in terms of health and safety. I think that people have become complacent with, with HSC. Um, I think it was Courtney McNish who had called for a corporate manslaughter law, similar to what happened, what, what they have in the UK. So I think our whole OSH Act has to be revisited. Um, and I think we have to have more more stringent penalties for violations of the OSH Act, and that we have to we have to put we have to create more more liability for directors of companies that that do the wrong thing, so that um, so that people feel a, a sense of coercion um, exists if they don't follow the, the law. But I think that we have allowed HSE to slip in Trinidad, not just in energy, but throughout the whole country. And, of course, we will pay a dear price for that as those divers in Paria pay that price. So, you know, well, we have a country. What... We lost four lives. And, and Ramesh Maraj told us last week that uh, he thought both entities were liable at some level, both LMCS and Paria. Uh, do you think that the lack of a the the, the 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 fact that no official rescue effort was mounted despite Christopher Boudram's assertion that there were men alive in the pipe raises to the level of abdication of duty or negligence. Well, you know that that whole issue of negligence is, uh, is you know is, is what we call tort law. Um, we wait for Mr. Maraj's report. Um, but I follow the Commission of Inquiry very carefully. And one of the things that my observation is that we have allowed safety to slip in Trinidad and Tobago. Um, and if we had 
if we had not allowed safety to slip into Trinidad Tobago, there would have been greater oversight of those diverse activities. And I just want to say that and this is a, a lesson learned. If you have a subcontractor working for you in your premises, depending on the level of risk that the subcontractor is undertaking, the level of oversight should be greater. So if you have somebody coming to mop your studio, there's a level of risk. If you have somebody coming to do electrical work in the studio, there's a higher level of risk. Your oversight is supposed to be proportional to the level of risk. Um, so I think that it's a lesson learned for people who have subcontractors or independent contractors coming into their compounds to do work. You have a duty to have to to to, to exercise oversight, um, and and not just oversight, but oversight in a in a very microscopic way. So I think it hopefully. Um, it changes the culture of health and safety in Trinidad. Unfortunately, a tragedy always has to happen for these things to change. As as is the case, in, you know, there was a famous accident in the North Sea in 1987, I think it was called the Pipe Alpha Disaster, where an oil platform exploded and killed about 170 men. That changed the whole culture of HSC in the world, not just the North Sea. Um, and then there was the, the Deepwater Horizon accident in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010. And that changed how companies operate offshore and so on. So I am hoping that at the very least, the this Paria incident changes the way we we run health and safety in Trinidad and Tobago. But I think that the families of these, of these divers deserve answers and they deserve justice. So I am waiting on you know the very the the, the report to come from Ramesh Lawrence Maraj, um, but I must say that you know the commission from Chairman Lynch was, and Chairman Lynch, but I must say the commission of inquiry was very eye-opening. I think that um, I hope that HSC professionals in Trinidad and Tobago took note and followed the commission of inquiry because. And I've seen, I've, I've already seen where some behaviors are changing in some companies. Um, for example, companies asking for for method statements and for emergency response plans and so on. So I'm hoping that there is that change. And I'm, let's wait to see what Mr. Maraj and Mr. Lynch come up with in their report, which I expect, I think, is April. Okay, gentlemen, I know we're not going after eight, so... <laughs> no. <laughs> well, thank you so much, uh, Kevin Ramner, right, for speaking with us this morning. We appreciate a, it. Have a good day. Thank All the best right. to you. Thank you. Okay. All right. Take care. Hmm. Interesting. Well, that was Kevin Ramner, former Minister of Energy, of course, and weighing on on different top topics in the energy sector, including the paria um, issue. But, you know, interesting perspective on the whole issue of gas and what our gas needs are and where we are at um, in terms of monetizing what gas we have here and, and, and what our possibilities are for getting more gas here. So, interesting. And I suppose it all connects to the larger picture of how diversified we become as a country. Because obviously, all of this, to me, the clear message out of all of this, Paul and Steve, is mm -hmm. that 
we shouldn't just be focusing on the energy sector in terms of Trinidad and Tobago's survivability. Obviously, we have to look at other sectors um, in making sure that they monetize in terms of increasing our GDP. And of course, the entertainment sector comes to mind, um, the issue of our manufacturers and, and what they do. So all of that has to connect into some larger plan of how robust our non-energy sector becomes. Because to me, that's where our future ultimately lies. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Uh, just a reminder of our morning poll. We asked you this morning, do you think that the possibility of Jack Warner, the UNC reuniting, will be a successful political force against the People's National Movement? All right. That's our poll this morning. Of course, it's going to stay up until tomorrow morning when we give you the final results of our poll. All right. Uh, good morning to you, Dean um, and Rampage. Good morning to you. All right. Let's get into our 8 o'clock news brief on this, the sixth day of February. Thank you for choosing Power 102 Digital. Listen every weekday for our live show starting at 6 a.m. Remember, like, share, and subscribe. Power 102 Digital.